Uh, good evening, good evening, everyone. Let's um, let's get started. Uh, thank you to to all of you for making it this evening. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a, a stimulating talk from Vern Henderson on uh, China's urban policies. I promised Vernon that I wouldn't embarrass him too much by uh, bigging him up uh, before we started. Uh, but you know, for those of you that, that don't know. Vernon is one of the world's leading urban economists. Uh, I was going to call you a founding father of, uh, of the sort of modern <laughs> urban, but I thought you might object to the uh, reference <laughs> to your age. So, uh, but you know, Vernon's uh, work in the in the 70s and early 80s basically laid the foundations for all of the work that that many of us do in this field. Uh, and in some ways, you know, more recently, uh, Vernon has been leading the charge on. Uh, forcing us urban economists to, to take development uh, and issues around urbanisation uh, more seriously than, than perhaps we, we have done, where, where the bias of many of us has been sort of towards uh, developed country urban systems, and we've paid uh, perhaps precious little attention to what's been going on uh, in the place which is arguably actually got the more interesting stuff going on, which is lots of the developing world, which is urbanising very rapidly. So uh, I'm delighted that, that Vernon's uh, agreed to, to give us a talk this evening. I'm uh, looking forward to hearing uh, what he has to say, and the uh, floor is yours, Vernon. Thank you. Um, thank you all for, for coming, and uh, thank you, Henry, for uh, your introduction. Um, so I'm going to talk about China's uh, urban policies. I'm going to talk about uh, several policies that bear on urbanization uh, in China. Uh, dilemmas is in the title. I'm going to talk about one dilemma. And at the end, on the final slide, you'll see reference to another. As I gave in the title of the talk some months ago, and uh, to do the first dilemma, and I think the central one, uh, is going to take our time this evening. So... Uh, China, over the last 30 years, since the reform era, starting in the well, late 1970s, but really the early 1980s, has had incredible economic growth. We're talking 8 10% a year in real GDP growth. That has completely transformed China. It's been a rising tide. It has made everybody better off. We'll see some visual images of that sort of transformation that has occurred. That said, there are still issues of reforms that have been slow and that have been delayed that are creating both economic and social problems as we look to the future. So one of them concerns national labor markets, which is truly um, lifting the explicit and implicit migration restrictions that apply to people moving across locations in China. Another is the capital markets that remain dominated by the state and create really significant, even massive distortions in the allocation of capital. And then one I'm not going to talk about in so much detail is the fiscal resources of non-political cities and uh, their problems in, in funding themselves. These particular issues have, in the Chinese context, created what is a common problem in developing countries historically and in some developing countries today, which is that there's a bias in the allocation of capital, 
Um, export and import licenses will give some examples. Public investments towards the major political cities. In the case of many countries, that's the capital city. That bias draws migrants into those cities, a process that we'll talk about. And it leads either to overpopulation of those cities, you know, your Mexico cities of 30 million, your Jakarta's of whatever they are now at, 20 million, uh, and deterioration of the quality of life in those cities. Or it leads to resistance to in-migration, either implicit resistance or, in the case of China, more explicit uh, resistance. That has, there's a dilemma now that China faces. There are two policies that if both were carried out would have very adverse consequences. First is a potential policy that really has yet to be enacted in full, and that is to increase social harmony, that's the Chinese term, by truly freeing up migration, allowing people to move freely like you would in Europe or uh, in North America, access public services in the place you go to, and, and to move freely. That would increase economic performance, and it would surely reduce inequality. And as we'll see in a bit, uh, inequality in China is at an extreme you know, in the world. The other is a long-term policy that has been in place uh, for a long time, which is favoritism in capital markets and public uh, investment allocations for major political cities. The new leaders in China are focused on urbanization, even forced urbanization as a key to growth. And I think in the way they probably perceive things, they're probably not so willing to let go of those long-term policies. This, the talk is going to develop the nature of the dilemma that I've referred to that these two policies uh, create, and, and in some sense it's, it is about the future of Chinese society. I, at the end I may, if I get carried away, cast it in the extreme as really the peasants versus the elites, but um, you'll see this as, as we develop it. So what's the context? Uh, in the Maoist period, China was a planned economy with no free markets. I put planned in quotation marks because it wasn't a Soviet-style planned economy, really technical with linear programmers and input-output tables and so on. This was more localized, provincial-level, seat-of-the-pants planning with the national government reaching down in areas of transportation and and natural resources to take a firmer control. Reforms start or are announced in 1978 and are slowly implemented and start to take hold in the, in the 1980s, and they're focused on what economists call the output markets, trying to create more competition, uh, greater diversity of products, particularly of consumer products, and to make uh, things more efficient. So in the 1980s, the Reforms, which are in some sense experimental, are in the rural sector. They're agricultural reforms that move away from the commune system so that uh, farmers have personal responsibility, as it's called, freedom to plant the crops they want, to sell them on the open market that eventually emerges over that decade. The second part of the reforms in the rural sector was there was a recognition, the top leadership, that there was a surplus of workers in agriculture, estimated at that time by them about 200 million, probably not dissimilar to what it is today. And they realized these people had to come out of agriculture, but they didn't want them going to the cities. 
So hence this phrase, uh, leave the land but not the village. So the idea was you, we would create these town and village enterprises that would absorb these workers and this would be rural manufacturing. And that was a huge development and a vast growth of industrial output in the rural sector that lasted up and through the 1990s, late 1990s. In the urban sector, reforms really don't start uh, in any significant way until you're well into the 1990s. And that was reform of industry, privatization of the state sector, and relative dramatic shrinkage of the state sector, and the development of a, uh, of a competitive or somewhat competitive business service sector. So if you were graduating college in China in 1996, the, the best thing, the greatest thing to be doing was to go into advertising, because advertising was a brand new industry that had been moved out of the state newspapers and was allowed to be in the private sector, and that was what young people wanted to do, was to go into advertising. The, I'm going to talk about you know, some of the consequences of these reforms, just to give you a picture of how fast-moving this is. So in the top table there, we have the fraction of the population that's urban, 1978, 17%, today 50%. That's massive movements of people out of their farms into some type of urban uh, context. The fraction of the labor force and farming from 75% down to about 30%, some issue about how you, you count that. In terms of the urban system itself uh, in the last 10 years, so first of all, in China there is an urban hierarchy, an administrative political hierarchy, and cities in that hierarchy, according to their stature, have different powers, different degrees of autonomy, different ability to influence and implement policy, different ability to attract foreign investment. Uh, it's really significant, significant differences in power. So at the top, you have four provincial-level cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, and Chongqing. And then you have the provincial capitals, and then you have the rest. So China, and I'm looking at Han China, is divided into actually about 270 prefectures. And in about 250 of those prefectures, there's an urban core. In the case of a city like Beijing, the urban part is most of the prefecture the slash province. The, uh, in many prefectures, the core is just a tiny part of the overall area. So if we look here, we see there are these significant income differences as you move down the urban hierarchy with the provincial-level cities offering the highest. It's not clear those are out of line. There are skill composition differences in these cities, cost of living differences. If we look at the growth rate in GDP per capita, the total growth rate between 1990 and 2010, we're getting about 700% modest differences between, uh, between these levels in the hierarchy. But 700%, that's phenomenal growth, right? But then this is China. Uh, the growth in the urban area population, these cores in, in all these levels are quite significant. But this is migration within the prefecture. This is people moving from the rural part of the prefecture, the periphery, into the center, into the urban core. That's what's accounting for these high numbers. When we look over here in the last column, at growth in the whole prefecture population, 
At the bottom here, most of these prefectures, 16% over 20 years is less than the natural rate of replacement. It's a low rate of growth, and it's because people are leaving those prefectures and they're moving either to the provincial capital or these provincial level cities, which have had much higher growth because of migration. So there's two kinds of migration. There's this enormous migration within the prefectures where it's, the restrictions are less and it's easier to move. And then there's this migration across prefectures, which is more regulated, more difficult in ways that we'll describe, but the movements are from kind of the rest of China into these political cities. I'll show you some pictures. You know, these are kind of web-based pictures from the Maoist area, an industrial city in the northeast. Um, uh, you know, happy workers doing their morning calisthenics. Uh, this is uh, pictures I took. This is uh, a village in Dingxi County, which was the poorest county in Han, China. These folks had to live in this village. They weren't allowed to leave. They couldn't grow enough grain to feed themselves. They were reliant uh, on grain shipped in by the state, otherwise they would starve, and there were times when they starved. Uh, this is Nanjing, just a shot out. This is uh, a Sunday afternoon in a city called Wuxi in Jiangsu province. Uh, you know, a, typical at that time, there's no cars. Uh, if you look here at Nanjing, you know, there's a few buses here, but really no private cars, a person on their bike. This is the sort of housing. This is the Mao's built housing from uh, the Mao's area in Beijing, uh, a shot of a building. So this was China uh, 30 years ago. This is uh, kind of China today, right? And, uh, these are select shots. So th these are residential neighborhoods in Shanghai. That's the bird nest stadium built for the Olympics. This huge spectacle, uh, public investment. This is an interchange in uh, Shanghai. Now cars, uh, massive, uh, massive investments. All right, so I'm going to turn to these reforms in the factor markets. So I'm going to talk about factor markets, what economists call factor markets, input markets. I'm going to talk about labor and uh, capital, not so much about land. That would take, uh, it's, it's not essential and, and would take a lot of time. So the first thing is that in China, in the Maoist era and today, there is a strict rural-urban divide. Yet the rural sector in Mao's China was a separate socioeconomic political system. It was governed differently and it was structured differently than the urban sector. And there was a hierarchy of the urban sector, obviously above the, not obviously, but the urban sector above the rural sector. So if you were, lived in the rural area, you had certain entitlements, you belonged to a commune, you got to work the commune lands, and for that you would get a share in what was produced. The communes were mostly self-financing, they didn't get grants from the provincial government or from the center. Uh, most of their grain was taken by quota by the state and given to urban residents. If you lived in the city, you were entitled to a job in state-owned firms, you were, got housing, from your work unit, Danway Housing, you had an entitlement to rations, grain rations, kerosene, and, and uh, cooking oils. Uh, the land in, in the rural sector was owned by the collective. The land in the city was owned by the state. As a, 
urban sector as a city, you've got allocations of capital uh, from the center or from the provincial level. So we then move into the post-Maoist era, and we have start with these reforms. So I'm going to talk first about the labor market, and then I'm going to talk about the capital market. And I'm going to spend some amount of time on the labor market because this is really, the, in some sense, part of the crux of the problem. After 1978, when you start in the reform era and before 2000, population movements are highly restricted. So there's the HUCO system, which is a registration system. That in itself is, is not the issue. It's what goes with that. So first of all, you were a citizen of a village, a rural person, a peasant in those days it was called, or you were a citizen of an urban district, a grain ration person, as it was called at that time, according to what your mother was. So it was matrilineal system. There were very few citizenship changes that occurred over the years since 1978. In fact, from 1978 to 2000, the number of citizenship changes per year is about the same, uh, really accommodating people moving across the urban sector from one city to another. If you wanted to migrate, you could migrate illegally uh, as an illegal migrant, as happens in many countries. Uh, but that's cross-country. Or you could migrate legally. If you migrated legally, you, in essence, needed a visa. You needed permissions from the place you were leaving, permissions from the place you were going to, and you needed to pay fees, maybe two to three months' wages to, uh, to get these permissions. After 2000, so that was mostly focus on this movement across prefecture boundaries, if you wanted to move to Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou. After 2000, migration without permission is legal. That's no longer a problem. However, rural migrants to cities are still challenged. And I put uh, Chan in there because there's a person at the University of Washington, Cam Wing Chan, who writes about this like all the time. This is his life, so this is where I get... If I don't know something, I ask Cam Wing. Um, when you come to a city as a rural migrant in the city, you are not entitled to a formal sector job, formal sector housing, and you're not entitled, entitled most specifically to public services in the cities, and I'll elaborate on that. Moreover, when you leave the agricultural sector, unlike other, say, developing countries, you can't sell off your rights usage rights to the agricultural land that you've been farming because it's owned by the collective, nor can you sell off your implicit shares that you own in the town and village enterprises because you can't transfer them. You have to, in some sense, abandon them. The only comment here is that after 2000, there is an increase in the conversion of citizenship from rural to urban hukou, and some of those decisions are decentralized, and I'll refer to that in a, in a minute. So what are some of the issues for these migrants that come to cities? Well, the first thing is schooling for your, your kids, right? So, you know, if, if you're in Europe or in North America, you move from one city to the next, uh, you enroll your kids in the local public school and show you have an address, and they go. It's, it's not an issue. In China especially in the political cities, there's limited access or no access to the state elementary schools. So 
There have been a lot of orders by the uh, state council to try and get cities to be more flexible, take the migrants into their schools. And a number of the schools have spots, but there's been a lot of resistance to it. So that um, you, uh, it's, it's either you pay high fees or you just can't get your kids into the state schools. For high school, you have no access. You were supposed to go to high school back in the village that you came from or the high school associated with that village. It might involve commuting or boarding if it's a really remote rural area. So maybe you can get your kids into the state elementary schools, but unlikely uh, the state secondary schools are going to be a, a real problem. So as a parent, what, what are your options? Well, you can leave your children behind with the, with the grandparents, left behind children. There's a literature on them, and grandparents spoil the kids, the kids miss the parents. Um, uh, it's not a great option. You can put your kids in these quasi-legal, low-quality private schools. So they have these in these bigger cities. Uh, note a number here. This is... Uh, Actually, from a World Bank report, 79% of the migrant uh, children in Guangdong province are in, in private schools, these private schools. I say quasi-legal in the sense that, that they're not strictly illegal, but the cities keep trying to close them down. So in Beijing, there's this game of you start a school started by the migrants themselves, often staffed by migrant parents. And, uh, and the city comes in on some pretext of it doesn't meet fire code uh, and shut the school down, and then they have to move. So it's a real game. The claim is that in these schools, the performance is poor compared even to the poor rural schools, although I've heard that debated. But it's, a, it's a, certainly an uncertain world for your kids and a limited ability to get them, them schooled. And this is only elementary school. High school is uh, just really, really tough. For housing, in China, in cities, uh, under Mao, the housing was not a commodity. It was a, it was a welfare item that you were allocated. In, so people lived in these small uh, units. They paid some nominal rent that wouldn't even cover the, the utilities. In the reforms in the housing market in the early 1990s, the intent of the state, which largely was realized, was to induce these tenants to buy their units at a subsidized price. And the intent of all the reforms was that all new housing should be owner-occupied housing, that in essence there wouldn't be a rental market, which may seem very strange, but that was the intent of the policies. So for migrants, trying to access this market is really hard. You, first of all, you don't want to actually buy a house as a migrant and when you're looking for jobs and not sure where you're going to be in five years from now. And if you wanted to buy a house, it would be very hard to get a mortgage. So migrants tend to do one of two things. They live in dorms, single-sex dorms, which for a family is not exactly what you, you dreamed of. Or they live in urban villages under rural governance. So what are urban villages? So in Beijing, there are about 300 of these villages. Most of them are commune and, and um, areas that the city overran. The city annexed the, the farmland, but not the living land. So, you know, you had an area of uh, 
the village where people lived, and then you had the, the land that was, uh, that was actually farmed. They didn't annex the living land, I think, for two reasons. One is it was difficult to negotiate the price. The, the price of agricultural land was more uh, formulaic, and this was more, had to be negotiated, was more difficult to negotiate. And secondly, if you took um, their living land, then you would have to give these people urban hookah. And at that time, in the infinite wisdom, they didn't want to do that. So you have these areas spread throughout Beijing that are still under collective governance, still run by the original peasants. And what do they do? Well, they provide housing for migrants. They farm the housing, it's, it's called. The land is very valuable. Uh, migrants need housing. But they're not officially part of the city, so getting services, garbage collection, water sewerage is, uh, is, uh, is challenging. This is a, a picture um, of an um, urban uh, village in Beijing. It's, uh, it's one in the northeast of Beijing. About 40,000 people live in this village. Uh, this is one where it's not just the living land. They took some of the farmland and developed that too. And what you have here is uh, these, they're bricks. So that's pretty good for a slum, what I would call a slum in a, in a maybe not in a country with, with China's income level, but if in a lower income country, a, a brick unit would be good. Tin roof. Um, these are single room, single um, room units in which five or six people sleep. Uh, so it's like a little, uh, a little dorm, I guess. And all the cooking, uh, all the storage, all the washing, uh, toilet facilities are all outside these units, right? So you're, and you see all the stuff that's just stacked up outside here, everything drying and so on. So this is, uh, you know, this is migrant housing, very different than the slides I showed you of those nice apartments in Beijing and nice streets. Another slice on, uh, on migrants here is uh, their access to social insurance, you know, pension, health care, unemployment insurance, uh, workman's compensation, maternity insurance. Urban workers' coverage is not that great, but 50, 60 percent, or 30 here for maternity, and migrant workers is obviously much, much, uh, much, much lower. So you have these people who are in the rural sector, they want to migrate, they do migrate in massive numbers, but there are restrictions. It's difficult for them. The living conditions in cities are, I think, deliberately made unpleasant problems for how they get their kids into school. So these are two types of numbers that people like to do. This green line here is the ratio of per capita income, but it would be the same, the numbers for consumption are the same between a rural, typical rural resident or the average rural resident and the average, uh, um, sorry, the average urban and the average rural. So we start off here. This is not a timeline, and I wish it was. This is a graph from a World Bank report. It should really be years, but it marches through time from 1978 to almost the present. So we have um, this, we start off in 1978 with rural incomes being about 2.3 times uh, urban incomes being 2.3 times rural incomes. There's a dip with the agricultural reforms, but then in the later time period, there's just this steady rise until today, 
Rural, urban incomes are about three to three and a half times uh, rural incomes. So this has been an increasing gap between the rural and urban sector. We think in part pushed by the fact that the rural sector is undercapitalized and second people can't move freely uh, in the way you would like them to move. The second thing here in the blue is the, uh, is the Gini coefficient. So that's a measure that economists, sociologists use to reflect income inequality. A low number means you're quite equal. A high number means you're quite unequal. Societies that are quite equal, Japan, Korea, Indonesia, these are Asian societies, have genies of 25, 25 to 30. India would be 30, 35. The United States and Brazil would be 45. Um, the most unequal countries, Colombia, uh, South Africa, would be 60. China, in this time period, has just seen this steady rise here in the Gini coefficient. In these World Bank numbers here, it flattens out at about in, in the 40s, in the low 40s, rather like the United States or Brazil. However, it's been was recalculated or calculated not by the World Bank, by Chinese economists last year using uh, much better data, household survey data, and they came up with a genie of 60, which is extraordinarily high. I mean, that places China in this top 5% of nations in the world that are unequal. So this is a socialist society. And this is an unusual feature, right, you would think, for a socialist uh, society. All right. That's, that's labor. The other thing that economists like is, is capital, right? Um, so in, until the early 1990s, there was the Bank of China, but there wasn't really a, a banking system that functioned in the normal sense of the word. Starting in the mid-1990s and through the 1990s, there were a series of reforms and a, you know, a back-and-forth process where the, the, the banking system was reformed and is much better than it was. In, in the, by the late 1990s, about 30 to 35 percent of bank loans are, were non-performing, meaning they were in... in default in essence and you know if you were a bank in a developed country and you had a um, performing loans over one or two percent you'd be in deep trouble this is you know 30 35 percent so the reforms attempted to deal with some of this but the banks are all in, st in essence still state-owned they're subject to political objectives their policies are sent by the center and, um, or by provincial capitals, by the party, in essence, to, to be consistent to some degree with what the party wants and you know, what's viewed as should be happening, not set by the market. Lower-level branches have little lending autonomy. So there are two features of this. First of all, not surprisingly, the banking system, which is state-owned, favors state-owned firms. So the return on capital, so these numbers are from 2007. And people have worked on these numbers, and the Chinese have stopped collecting the data that would allow you to compute these numbers. So I can't do it for today, but the last year you could do it for is 2007, so that's what you're going to see. 
So the, the return on capital um, on state-owned firms is about 50% lower than for wholly private-owned firms. The idea here as an economist is that you're a firm, you're employing capital up to the point where its marginal benefit equals its marginal cost or until its return equals its marginal cost. So these lower state-owned returns come from the fact that they face a lower cost of capital, can acquire more capital, overcapitalize, and so they have lower returns. The banking system also favors political cities where the influence is. So, such as Beijing and Shanghai. And then looking just at wholly private firms throughout the country, that the return at, at the margin in Beijing and Shanghai and Tianjin is 36% lower in those cities than in other more you know, regular uh, cities. So I, I have some graphs here for this. So this is... Uh, for the whole uh, industrial sector, all firms above, that have sales above 5 million renminbi, which isn't, isn't that much. And this is the distribution of returns for this huge sample of firms. And on the right is the private, on the left are the state firms. And as you can see, the state firms are distinctly shifted to the left. They have lower returns. The whole distribution is shifted. For the city part of it, these are private, um, let me I use the pointer here. So this is uh, the curve here, the solid curve is for private firms in regular cities, and there are two curves here, but they perfectly overlap. One of them is for private firms in political cities. Again, shifted to the left, not quite so dramatic, but distinctly there, and that yields you that on average 36% differential. When you look at individual cities, and you know, I picked these a priori, but I was guessing, and I turned out to be right. So this is Beijing, and uh, this is one of these is Tianjin, the other is Shanghai, these distributions to the left here. And then we have these kind of freewheeling cities in the south, Guangzhou, even though it is an it, it influential city, but not influential in the sense of Beijing and Shanghai. And then Shenzhen, again, with these returns distinctly to the right. So the capital market here is screwed up. There are just these differences in distributions or returns by your status as a firm or by your location of where you um, are situated. What does this give us? Well, it gives us this traditional developing country issue of favoritism of political cities. Most of the literature focuses on uh, national capitals. So there's a, a literature going back 30 years on this, uh, one of the papers, the Addison Glazer one, has this, I think it's called Trade and Circuses, really referring to the Roman circuses that were there to uh, both and free grain to draw people into Rome and political support. These political cities in these other contexts, the historical examples of Brazil and Indonesia, better access to capital markets. <coughs> typically better access to import and export licenses. So in Indonesia, um, at least in the pre-democracy area, the provision of import and export licenses was centralized in Jakarta. So if you're a firm and you wanted an export and an import license, you had to go to Jakarta, queue, seek favor, pay bribes, and you'd get your license. 
going to Jakarta and spending a lot of time doing this is very difficult. That becomes an incentive to move your firm or at least some part of your firm to Jakarta in order to do this. It gives Jakarta this advantage. As a comment, not, nothing really to do with the talk, but it's instructive. Why didn't they decentralize the provision of licenses? Well, of course, these guys in the center, there's, they're a monopoly. There's one person or one little bureaucracy that controls these licenses. Everybody wants a license, and they're going to pay a fee for that, a monopoly rent. If you decentralize this provision out to other cities, then you've got competitors. You, know, the, you go to the person in, in Jakarta, and they demand this bribe, and you think, well, I'll go to Surabaya or I'll try some other city and see if I can get a better deal. So there becomes price competition. So they, the Indonesian bureaucrats had it right. You, you centralize this provision and you collect these rents. And then there's the issue, uh, typically in countries, of, uh, of funding of projects in, in political cities and the, the public sector side that tends to favor uh, political cities. And maybe I'll talk about it for China in a moment. So again, in this more generic context around the world, favoritism draws in firms that are seeking this cheap, cheaper capital or seeking licenses. Those firms offer jobs that creates jobs to match the cheaper capital, and then that attracts migrants to work because the firms want to, to hire. The better public services attract migrants if it's available to them. That's not the case in China. The result is, of course, cities are determined by their sizes, are determined by their ability to attract migrants. Increased favoritism raises potential real incomes. That attracts more migrants. That increases population. That results in more congestion and higher costs of living in this city until those benefits that you've given out or with free migration are dissipated through higher living costs, higher congestion, and, and the like. So in China, there are various forms of favoritism. And I'm talking about this favoritism, people write on it, but it's really hard to get, you know, hardcore evidence, right? And, you know, this data we saw in capital markets is, is pretty hardcore evidence. But things like public infrastructure investments, people work on this problem, they sort of show, gee, the per capita expenditures on X, Y, and Z are, you know, three times, four times, five times higher in Beijing than some other city, but then the demands in Beijing are also higher. How much excess is that? Hard to know. Uh, the schooling, the quality of schooling in Beijing, the funding for schooling in political cities, in fact, in cities in general, the colleges are much better than in rural areas. Rural schools in China are grossly underfunded. And you think if these people have access to capital market and get political favors in that way, there are surely other forms that this can take. But again, it's hard to you know, find the smoking gun. Maybe the capital market, we, we kind of have it. And then people write about the cost of overpopulation. I, I'm not going to say just yet that Beijing is overpopulated, but there's kind of this is a, again, this is a World Bank report. It's a commuting cost time one way uh, in smaller cities, and then as it rises with city size in China. So in Hangzhou, the commuting time's 22 minutes one way. In Beijing, it's 38. This is average. I don't know where these numbers came from and whether, you know, they're really good numbers, but pro approximately uh, twice as long in Beijing to get to your, your job. And then there are people 
we know from other survey data that are commuting huge amounts of time. This is, you know, I pulled these off the web today. These are the typical pictures that appear in the newspapers, uh, appear in blogs. This is smog in Beijing, uh, just terrible air quality, uh, even after the Olympics, even after all the attempts to clean it up. Dust blowing in, uh, cars. Beijing has been much less restrained in allowing car usage to expand than, say, Shanghai. Uh, there are many contributing factors to this, but air quality is, is terrible. So, in China, despite the restrictions on migration and despite the limitations and the difficulty for migrants in cities, uh, they still keep coming, right? Because the jobs are there, the capital is being put in place, the infrastructure is there, there's, uh, it's really the jobs, they're coming for jobs. So if we look at the populations here, in 2010, Beijing and Shanghai are about 20 million, their urban populations are also about 20 million, Shanghai a little bigger. These are getting to be big cities bigger than cities in Europe, but bigger than cities in, in North, uh, at least in the United States and Canada. The migrant population from outside the province is huge. Seven million for Beijing, nine million for Shanghai. And that's people who are still classified as migrants, meaning their hukou is somewhere else. There have also been a bunch of hukou conversions. So the people who were born outside the province or who've moved there in the last 20 years, the numbers would be much higher. Um, I don't know what they are. The annual growth rate of the migrant population from outside the, the province is 11, 12% a year. And that's huge, huge growth rate of migrants. The growth rate in the urban area population with this migration is 3 to 4% a year, near 4% in both cities. That increases your city population by about 50% every 10 years. So if Beijing is 20 million today, it's going to be 30 million in 10 years, and the same with Shanghai. That will put those cities amongst the biggest cities in the world if this continues. So what's the, the dilemma? I mean, in some sense it may be obvious, but I want to spell it out. The current policy is to favor these political cities and, in essence, maintain inequality. To try to keep is the wrong word. They're not keeping migrants out. They're obviously throwing in, but trying to deter migrants, more migrants, from moving to cities where their wages and productivity would be higher. The policy is called raising the door sill. It's an explicitly articulated policy for the political cities. This is the... We've got to restrain migration, and the way to do this is basically to offer poor living conditions and no public services to migrants. And that's what raising the door sill means, making it you know, more difficult to, uh, to step into the, the city. So that's maintaining what is called the double divide, the two divides. One is the divide between the urban and rural sector that still persists, still with the citizenship classification, now it's no longer based on your mother. It can be either your mother or your father. So it's a modest change, I guess. Um, and you can do more conversions now and change your citizenship a little easier than you could 
uh, 20 or 30 years ago when it was impossible. But within cities, you have two classes of residents, right? You have one class of residents who is denied, in essence, citizenship rights and delegated to a second class status. Their kids can't go to the schools. They can't, in particular, go to the high schools. Um, they don't have medical insurance. Uh, they, you know, if they're injured, they're either going to have to go back to their village or they're going to have to pay privately for, for health care. Um, and they're not part of the social insurance schemes. And they live in these urban villages or they live in dorms. The result of this policy is this huge inequality um, and if you like, lack of social harmony nationally. Is that a problem? I think in most countries we probably think a genie of 60 is a problem. Yeah, if you think of countries that have that kind of inequality, uh, Colombia, South Africa, have had long-term problems with political stability and social stability. We think that long-term growth will be affected. Um, in part because the rural children are undereducated. They're undereducated for two reasons. One is that the funding of rural schools is deficient. The government has struggled with that. There was a, a promise in the mid-2000s to take some of the foreign exchange earnings and put them into rural schools, but the sums that went were quite modest. And there's obviously the problem for these kids who um, are associated with, whose parents are migrants, in what kind of schools they're going to. We think of China in 1978 and that phenomenal growth that you saw since then, say compared to India, that the difference was, okay, we had these reforms in China and we think, well, the reforms you know, allowed this growth to occur. But the context was that you started with a population that was basically literate and could do arithmetic and, and simple mathematics in, say, contrast to a country like India. And now, as China develops, the demands on education are even greater. So you think, well, it's really important that these rural children that are coming into the cities and are going to be in the factories of the future, that they're better educated. And it's a problem. And then the, you know, the final consequence is you have these key cities that are, I said, on the brink of serious overpopulation. Some people might argue are beyond the brink of serious population, despite the migration limits very high cost of living, and uh, serious environmental problems. So if China were to move to increase social harmony, to truly free up migration, to integrate the migrants into the city, to give them access to public services, uh, housing, regularize these urban villages, uh, and all that kind of stuff, really make there be one class of people in the city, the result would be, of course, and they know this, that even more people would want to move to Beijing and Shanghai under the current uh, capital market and, and fiscal regime. And there's really strong opposition from local citizens of integrating the migrants. Uh, it's both based on a fear of loss of jobs, job competition, and probably based on discrimination. Um, the migrants stand out. They, they look different, they speak different, they wear different clothing, they're, they're identifiable. China could level the playing field across cities. It could eliminate the favoritism of these political cities in the capital markets and in the fiscal situation. It could do that. 
It could really, you know, reform the capital markets, place everybody on the same basis, give other cities the opportunity to have better access to capital markets, better fiscal resources, better schools, which would then attract migrants to those cities and take the pressure off uh, the political cities. That plan of eliminating the favoritism is opposed by elites. Uh, there's a debate in China over this. There are potential current plans is, is probably too much. There was a report from the Development Research Council, that is the research institute that feeds research into the party and into the, uh, into the president and so on, that came out this summer that really talked in some detail about this reforms and, and it was in conjunction with the World Bank report where one of the background reports, this did not appear in the final report, one of the background reports talked about these same issues and these same types of reforms. But I think, you know, the senior leadership has this view that we've been doing this stuff in the past, the way we've handled our capital markets has given us great growth, which is, is despite or because in their mind of this, and they're reluctant to, to move away from this. So, in summary, as a um, dilemma, right? Do you abandon your long-term policies favoring the political cities and the elites to improve social harmony? So, in, from an economist's point of view, this is a win-win situation, right? You, you, if you improve the capital markets, that would lead to more efficient use of capital. You improve the labor markets, that would lead to more efficient use of labor. It would surely reduce inequality um, in, in both a sort of a money sense and a, and a sense of access to services. It, from that point of view, it's, you know, it's a win-win. There would be losers, of course, these elites. This is really a, a fundamental question for China with a you, know, you have these over now capital cities and political cities that are really have very high populations, and in the case of Beijing, very unpleasant living conditions. Um, you have this extreme degree of inequality, and we understand that the you know the Chinese society, the government is strong, and that that there's uh, not unrest in that sense that you might expect, or that's not permitted, but. You know, you wonder are the under the surface are the forces uh, the forces there. So I've talked for about uh, over my time limit, three quarters of an hour. There's another dilemma here. If somebody asks me about it, I'll talk about it. But I think I'll stop there. Thank you. We've got time for questions. Uh, there are roving mics, I guess, so uh, if people want to put their hands up, and I will uh, take some questions of Erna. So, so, lady here. Hello. To what extent do you think that the uh, weak financial sector affects their, um, well, dilemma? I'm sorry, what, what, 
I didn't get the first part. Um, to what extent does the weak financial sector affect the dilemma? Oh, it's central to it. I think that uh, weak in the sense of, of both a I mean, there are a lot of problems with the financial sector, right? That, that people, uh, the rate of return on savings in banks is very low. People look for other ways to invest their money, such as in the housing market. The stock market offers uh, limited opportunities. The, uh, there's this huge wedge between what the banks are, are paying out in interest and, and the, what they're getting on loans that gives them this freedom to sort of jimmy around with what rates they're offering people. So I, I think it's central, the fact that if you're in these bigger cities, in the political cities as a firm, you can get cheaper capital as a, as a private firm, not as a state firm, not only as a state firm, but as a private firm. And I'm not talking, when I say private, I mean private domestic Chinese. Foreign firms are thrown out of this. And so I, I think it's central. It creates jobs, and some of those jobs should probably be somewhere else, to be quite honest. Great. There's another one there while we've got the mic there, that side. Well, um, these are not my own arguments, but I actually came across them from previous readings. The first argument that is to some extent challenging your notion of favoritism is that actually people, people actually wish to migrate to these um, higher rank cities, not because of state favoritism, but because of the local elites who favorite their own clans rather than giving out equal comp opportunities to the peasants and the people from lo lower ranks. So it's not higher favoritism of the state, but rather lower favoritism of the local elites that are um, causing the migrants to migrate into the big cities. And the other argument I want to mention is uh, an argument I read, I came across from the book um, China at Crossroads, I guess. And then the author says that the reason why the state wants to promote uh, the big cities first is because urbanization actually economizes um, infrastructure. So for China, if it wants to uplift uh, itself so swiftly, it's a better strategy just to economize the use of infrastructure for the um, big cities and then... Um, moving on to the smaller cities. So that's a kind of a plan to economize. Um, and I don't know um, how you would like to respond to these two arguments. <laughs> so, okay, so um, the first, I, as I understood it, you're saying, well, it's poor services driving the people out of rural areas rather than favoritism. And I guess I just see that as the other side of the same coin, right? Yeah. You know the differential in quality of school services for um, for citizens, at least, is just enormous between what you would get in uh, a, a nice urban school district uh, in Beijing or in Shanghai versus what you'd get in a rural area. Uh, the problem, of course, is that as a migrant, the only way you're going to be able to really access those services is if you can convert your hookah and or pay big fees. And that does happen, but it's a very slow process uh, that takes some years, and um, it, makes it, uh, it makes it difficult. So I see it more as these folks trying to strategize to, to what can they do with their kids 
say, in terms of schooling, leave them at home? Do they put them in these illegal schools? Do they try and strategize in order to get local hookah so their kids can go to the local school? Um, but the reason they're there is the jobs. I, I really think that's the case, that it's the jobs that, that are generated by this favoritism in the capital market. And I think that favoritism in the capital market is absolutely unambiguous. I mean, the, the data are there. It's, uh, you know, the graphs I showed you, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really, uh, really quite clear. Your second question was about what again? Infrastructure. Economizing on the oh, yeah, economizing on infrastructure. Um, yeah, it's, a, you know, it's an argument governments make. Uh, there's, this, again, is a hard data issue, and it's hard to get good data. The sort of casual estimates that people do say that the infrastructure requirements per capita in a big city um, like Beijing are maybe three times that in a much smaller town. It, you know, there are economies of scale in providing certain public services, but the infrastructure required for transportation in a huge city with all this congestion is just ast absolutely astronomical, and it outweighs everything else. So that the typical numbers that people use as a rule of thumb are like a three-to-one dif differential, just the opposite of... of what you're saying. So I, I know that people kind of do this argument where we think there are economies of scale in providing public services. Most studies say that those kind of economies of scale you're talking about peter out at a population of 200,000. So that might be an argument for maybe, you know, you want to encourage some people to move out of villages into, into towns nearby that are a little bigger size. But Beijing, is, this is nothing about economies of scale. These are huge infrastructure requirements. Yet simply not there. You know, we have big cities. There's a reason for them. There are economies of scale for certain types of activities that justify the existence of a, a New York or a, a London or a Tokyo. Um, that where there are these economies of scale in the business and financial service sectors that sustain these cities and allow, you know, you come here to get educated or whatever to live. Um, and you get paid, hopefully something, and um, to offset the cost of living and, and the types of activities that are in London uh, justify that. But, you know, we start getting into cities of 20 and 30 million, it's not clear what is there. And especially in the case of China, where the service and financial sector is not really freed up yet, which I can talk about if you want. Okay. So, I mean, I understand there are a lot of writings on this stuff. Great. There's uh, one here and then one down the front here. Yeah. Hi. Uh, well, I would like to build on the, on the previous question and on your, uh, your answers to them. Um, basically, the, the picture that you showed us is, uh, is uh, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a place where the economies of scale have reached, uh, of, so agglomeration reached levels of, uh, where these economies of scale started to kick in. So I wonder whether this, is, this may have implication for, the, for other countries. I think in particular of the World Bank uh, message in many developing countries which has uh, focused on uh, you should agglomerate in, in big cities and, uh, and uh, 
and leave the, this economy of scale to, to work and whether this uh, so this is, has a relevance for other countries or it's just related to, to a specific case of China where agglomeration has reached a, a level which is overly too high yeah, you've, you've asked a really complicated question. So basically, if, if we look in a country or we look worldwide, there's this wide size distribution of cities. Most people live in smaller cities. Most urban residents live in smaller cities, cities under a million. So in, if you look at the world's urban population, probably about 70% of it lives in cities under a million. Um, and very few live in these what, whatever you want to call them, mega cities. And these cities in the urban hierarchy, they do different functions. The smaller cities do standardized type of manufacturing. The big cities do these uh, business and financial services. So, you know, we sustain, and these distributions are sustained over time. The world size distribution in 1960, the relative shape of it at least is the same as it is today. It's, Cities have all grown, but you know what was a, a medium-sized city in 1960 is a smaller-sized city today. But they've all grown. But that relative shape is there. We have relatively lots of smaller places and a few bigger places. Uh, the World Bank, um, you have to be very careful about this. They think that urbanization is good for growth, not necessarily that it causes growth, like if you force urbanization, that isn't a good thing. And they like big cities. Um, I used to still tell them this, that's because where they go and hang out where the nice hotels are, but um, they do like big cities, but it's, there is a, a more nuanced view, and they have a more nuanced view when you, when you get down into it. Is it Chris? Did you want to come in? Hi, Chris. Thank you. I want to ask you about inequality. I mean, from, from the tone of your talk, you, you blame at least partially the rise in inequality and the distortions in labor and capital markets. But if you look at, at all large developing countries that start growing fast, like Russia, Brazil, I suspect also Britain and America in the 19th century, there is such a big rise in inequality, although we don't have the problems that China has. You know, for example, you know, Russia has, if anything, more inequality than China, but there are no restrictions in labor markets, migration, capital markets. I mean, do, do we know anything more about the structure of inequality in China to be able to say with so much confidence that if they remove these migration restrictions, for example, inequality will fall? I mean, no, no, I, I understand what you're saying. That you know, I, I think it would. How much that would be debatable. I, you're hinting that you know there, there's kind of this trade-off, right? If you have more inequality, your growth slower, and inequality goes with fast growth. But then, you know, you can look at Korea or Japan, right, which are very are very successful economies at different points of time in terms of their growth, and also very equal ones. I, I don't think that's a um, fundamental to growth, that it has to generate uh, inequality. I, I suppose, and, and you got from the tone of it, my objection is here is that more of this is institutionalized. And um, I don't think it's good for growth, and it's, I don't think it's good for inequality. I, you know, I, I don't, I, 
what would happen if they lifted migration restrictions and freed up the capital markets. You know, we've tried, people have tried to look at that. It's obviously a very complicated issue. Everything's going to be moving around. Go on, I'll let, I'll let you have two. Go on, go on. No Nobel Prize entitles you to two. You know, for for example, do, 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 do we know that uh, the inequality is due to a small elite that is very wealthy, and then all the rest are below? You know, there's an extremely right tail on the distribution, like, like Russia is with the oligarchs, or, or is it a bimodal distribution where those who happen to be before urban residents are wealthier on the right? Mode in, in I, I, I don't think it's as bimodal. There's certainly you read, obviously, about the wealthy Chinese, right? And, as you do in any country, but I don't think it's quite like Russia. I think it's more this uh, real difference with the, even within the urban sector from just ordinary urban people versus ordinary rural people. That again is is institutionalized. Um, so um, obviously, this you know having a class of oligarchs, if you want to call it that, is, is not helpful. Uh, in, and uh, it's a contributing factor. Uh, so there's more going on here than just the hookah system, I agree. But it's also connected with capital markets. The way you operate the whole economy, right, is done on a very much on a political favoritism basis. Okay, great. Uh, anyone else? There's one here. Thank you, Professor, for the really interesting talk. I have two questions. Uh, my first question is regarding the favoritism. Um, I assume that by saying dropping the favoritism, you could be that withdraw the favorite policies to the political cities, or it could mean to equalize certain favorable cities for all, let's say, secondary cities or prefectural level cities. But then um, there's a concern. If we equalize such favorable policies for all cities, then there's, um, uh, I say, physical limitation for the central government. But if we uh, withdraw, simply withdraw the favoritism policies for the primary cities, then um, we're probably ignoring the rationale behind that, which is those cities are the drivers for the Chinese economy um, growth. Okay, so let me comment on that. First of all, I disagree with that. I don't think they are the drivers. I think it's these freewheeling cities in the south and along the coast that are doing the manufacturing export that are, are ordinary cities, that they're the drivers of the growth. So I don't think the political cities are the drivers of the growth. And um, I don't think you want favoritism per se. I think you should have a free capital market where basically firms whether they're in the rural sector or in the urban sector. I mean, a challenge for China is to continue improving productivity in the agricultural sector, to move off this small-scale farming into a larger-scale modern manufacturing sector like you have in, in developed countries. That takes not just capital, but it takes know-how. It takes technical expertise. When you look in developed countries, the level of education difference between the urban and rural sector really aren't there. The people who do farming are sophisticated, sophisticated people. So I, I don't want a policy that sort of says, well, we favored this set of cities, now we're going to favor all the cities at the expense of the rural sector. That would be a disaster. So you're going to ask a second question. Henry's going to let you get <laughs> away with it. I don't I'm going know. to go over here. We'll come back if there's time. Huh? Yeah. Oh, no, I'd better be in place and discipline. 
Hi, Professor. Uh, I'm interested more in these urban villages and slums you're talking about, and I'm particularly curious, as cities like Beijing, Shanghai, whatever the case may be, continue to expand and become larger and larger, won't they annex more rural land and rural villages? And when they do annex these villages, do they risk becoming pockets of slums in the cities to the point where these cities might have to declare them and the, the residents within them as urbanites finally, or would they just kick them out? What, what do you see happening there? No, that's, uh, you know, we've talked to the Chinese about this. It's very, uh, it's very difficult. You have this kind of, it's not just sort of giving them hukou. You have this entrenched system where you have these areas that are under rural governance with all this housing for migrants that in the eyes of the city is would be in some sense quasi-legal, wouldn't meet their standards, and so on. And, you know, cities around the world do not like slums. The mayors are, are not happy having slums. You know, they're driving people around in a nice car, and they're showing them their city. They don't show them the slums, right? It's not a point of pride. And, um, You know, so the rational policy would be to annex these urban villages, give them services, regularize them in the kind of process that's gone on in South America, in different countries, to take the, the um, quasi-legal settlements, not necessarily illegal ones, but quasi-legal ones, and to start to regularize them, give them services, and, and bring those... I mean, the people in those slums have access to the schools and so on. It's different than in China, but at least to bring the housing market more in line with each other. So I, I think that is something that should happen in China. I'm guessing it'll happen at some stage. Uh, but I think until this whole issue of, of how you're going to treat the migrants and, and what their rights are going to be as a result, that's probably not going to happen. So it's an issue that's, that's out there that certainly is being talked about and, and, and we press them on it, but um, they are maybe more rightly focused more on the social issue of, of what should we do about services for the migrants. Okay, there's a couple at the back here. So let's go to the, the woman uh, here and then the gentleman next to her afterwards. So. Um, thank you very much, Professor, for the talk. I learned a lot from it. I'm just wondering if um, this Chongqing, the so-called Chongqing model, will provide alternative to this dilemma you've mentioned here. Because since the State Council implemented Chong, uh, designate Chongqing as the um, zone for experiment zone for integrating the urban rural development, it seems like there are a lot of success over there. So I'm just wondering if it will be imitation for something big that will be implemented across China. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, Chongqing, yeah. Um, I, I don't think Chongqing is going to be used as a model for anything in the near future, given all the political issues. So um, let me just make that as a practical statement without commenting on what should or shouldn't happen. And, all the trials and everything that have gone on, so I'll, I'll kind of pass on that question. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll give you speaker's prerogative there. Uh, the gentleman here. With a very short question, Professor. Do Chinese cities publish and regularly revise development plans and policies? 
Um, yes, uh, in, in the sense of economic plans and, and also there's two kinds of planning, right? There's economic planning and there's land use planning. Uh, economic planning is in the Maoist era was done at the city level and at the provincial level, so these cities all have statistical bureaus and an old apparatus that is there. There is still a planning process in terms of support of state-owned firms, influence in the banks, and so on that goes on as an economic planning process. There is also a land use planning process that is pretty chaotic and land use plans are generally ignored um, in actual implementation. So the city will draw up a land use plan and then the land bureau which auctions off the land and distributes it will do something completely different. And so um, there is economic planning. There's not uh, a lot of binding land use planning other than you, you know what is authorized but not by the land use planners. Well, it has to exist, so they plan infrastructure, right? They do infrastructure, but I'm thinking of land use planning in, the, in the terms of zoning or something. That having binding zoning just doesn't exist. Okay, now, I, we're always told to balance things out. I've taken questions from there, questions from there. I've done quite well on gender. I've had no one from the middle. Any, uh, <laughs> so, uh, one here. Uh, my question is also quite brief. It's, uh, I just wonder whether you think there may be a possible connection, in fact, between LSE and uh, some of the problems you've uh, described, uh, because uh, it's unmistakable that a very large, a significant proportion of students uh, at LSE are, in fact, uh, from China, uh, and uh, inevitably uh, they will be from privileged backgrounds. And so I just wondered whether you thought that phenomenon um, reflected um, a role of LSE in uh, resolving uh, some of uh, the problems you've described, or whether it possibly, in effect, exacerbates them. <laughs> Let me make a, a general statement, um, and I'm not going to answer about the LSE, but you'll get my answer uh, from that, which is that, so I'm, I'm Canadian, but I lived in the United States for some period of time, and um, in recent years, the United States has been quite restrictive on the ability of foreign students to to come to uh, the United States, particularly from certain countries. And I think that's a terrible policy. I think if you're America and you want to export certain values and, and have influence, that the way you do it is by educating the future elite of those countries in whatever you think your ideals are, whether they're democratic ideals or ideals about free markets. So I think it's wonderful that we have all these Chinese students here and. I hope we're exposing them to new ideas that they wouldn't have gotten exposed to in China or, and concepts that they never would have had in, uh, gotten in high school um, given the restrictions on curriculum. So um, I, I think it's great. Great, great diplomatic answer. Well, so we'll take one there and then this <laughs> gent here is trying to get in. Uh, thank you, Professor Henderson. Actually, I'm from uh, one of the Chinese uh, provincial political cities, and I've been working in the local governments for a couple of years. Uh, this city is Chengdu. And uh, as uh, that lady mentioned, Chengdu is also another city designated by the state council as uh, one of the experiment experimental zones. 
And uh, during the past years, we've been finding that uh, the local farmers are really having a difficult time trying to attract uh, financial investment in the rural areas. And uh, you stressed the need for opening up the financial sectors. Do you think, is there any chance for us to attract any foreign financial companies to invest in our, in our rural areas? Thank you. Oh, um, I mean, there should be, right? That there's potential Chengdu and the surrounding area and around Cheng Chengdu is a rich agricultural area and has, um, certainly has great potential. I think the difficulty is that we haven't had reforms in the rural sector that, that are in, in terms of uh, the leases on lands and, and how those are passed on and what your rights are as a farmer to the land that you have and the ability to transfer lands between, uh, between households on a more permanent basis. Uh, all that stuff is in a, in a state of flux in, in terms of reform. And I think until, if you're a foreign firm and you're going in investing, you want to know that whatever you're investing in, you have clear title to, there are no legal issues, there's no complications, you don't have to turn to the local branch of the political party to enforce whatever contract you think you've signed, right? I think that uh, until those issues are cleared up, it's going to be hard to get foreign investment in. Um, okay, I mean, great. Chengdu has a, you know, has a lot of... Oh, let, me, uh, let me take another question. I, I could talk about Sichuan. It's unlike we can talk at some other time. Um, I understand that over the coming um, planning period that investment in education is going to be a priority of the Chinese government. Of, a, a bit in the way that um, transport infrastructure um, has been. Yes. Do you think that's true? And do you think that that is, and what do you think that the impact of that will be on the inequality in, in educational standards which currently exists? So I, I, to be honest, I don't know. I know that um, there have been these waves of policies to try and... Um, improve rural schools in particular, but I've heard it very much articulated. We will improve them, but only to some minimum standard. Um, we're not going to make them like the urban schools, and which is, was a bit of a shock for me at least. But uh, so I, I, you know, there are many reforms that announced form of the HUCO system, admitting kids to state schools. These have been announcements that have been going on for 10 or 15 years. And there's a slow progress on these, but it's, um, it's not like you announce something and it happens. Uh, I mean, it could, but that's not the way it works. So I would be suspicious. Okay, let's take a last uh, round of questions because we're getting very near the end. So there's a lady here in green. Keep them short. I'll gather three or four together and then I'll let Vernon pick the most interesting ones to answer just to get the incentives <laughs> right. I have to remember <laughs> that. Could you just clarify in which way the government favours the big cities so that then these... So this is uh, easier access to capital, cheaper capital, uh, less limits in how much you can borrow. Um, in the case of Beijing and Shanghai, so, you know, I'm commenting as an economist. There's a political objective there. We want to make these world-class cities. Um, we want to invest in things like the Olympics to 
be proud of our country, which is a valid goal um, in, a, in a political sense, right? And so we're going to do spectacular investments. We're going to have the fastest, you know, subway system or, you know, train system in, in, uh, in Shanghai. We're going to have, you know, all these great things because we want to be, uh, you know, a world-class place. And we want to show that in these particular cities. It, it's hard to, you know, to argue with that if you think of the Olympics, right? The Olympics are very costly for the rest of China. Um, and $40, $40 billion roughly invested in, in Beijing for the Olympics. But, you know, you look at these visions of people, you talk, or, you know, television images, you talk to people and so on, and people are intensely proud, right, to have the Olympics and to be able to say we had it in this great city and for you know, a short period of time, we cut the air pollution by stopping most driving and shutting factories down, <laughs> et cetera, right? So I, I don't know. Right, let me try again. I'm going to take a collection of three or four. Don't worry, I'll help you. Yeah, I'll, help me. I'll okay. help you if, if you can't yeah. remember what they were. So three or four quick roundups. There's one here, one there, one there, one there, and one there. That's five. We'll do those. Nice thank, and quick, thank you very quick. much. Thank you very much. Okay. Last year in November, China's government released a new plan for reforming the current hukou system, and doing uh, doing from now on to the uh, 2020, maybe. Uh, you know, a basic character is that this reform plans to free the migration migration from rural areas to small cities, and uh, in the meanwhile, uh, hard, hardly restrict the population of the mega cities such as Beijing, Shanghai. My question is, uh, to what extent do you think? Uh, this reform will help resolve those uh, dilemmas uh, you mentioned. And another question is that, uh, what are the p potential implications of this whole system reform for the migrant workers? Great, Thank number you. one. So there's number two. There, lady there. And then Hugh here. That's number three. Uh, just a very general question on the expanding scale of urbanization in China. This is your second to question. <laughs> oh, that. It's because I was sitting down and I let the first one go. All right, you'll have to be... I liked your question, but... You'll have to be Can extra, extra quick. Thank you. Um, the expanding scale of urbanization to prefecture-level cities in China, the benefits and the uh, shortcomings, um, what uh, there could be the possible way to absorb the surplus in labor in agri in agriculture sector and also to create more consumption power. But the, uh, the shortcomings could be the environmental degradation and uh, an expanding scale of inequalities. And I just want to, want to, want to know your opinion on, on this. Okay, Hugh. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask a question about the theoretical underpinnings of the analysis you've presented. <laughs> In the literature, the idea of spatial equilibrium plays a very big role. But if we look at uh, urbanization in China and any developing country, Africa as I am, it's perfectly obvious that equilibrium is very far from being achieved. So there's a role for dynamic modeling, maybe influenced by ideas of equilibrium. I'd, I'd like your view on whether the idea of uh, spatial equilibrium is actually at all helpful in the context of countries like China. Okay, we're nearly there. You're going to be to, on here. Um, hello. Uh, you mentioned win-win, um, um, possible win-win solutions. Here are two others, potentially. Uh, in the, some people have argued that the, one of the most important sources of funding in the rural sector and agriculture are remittances from, from mm. migrants. That's one thing. And then the other thing is that the hukou system has also um, 
kept people in rural areas and caused environmental problems, um, cultivation of marginal lands, sloped lands, yep. deforestation, and so on. So there are two other potential win-win situations. I wonder what you think of those. All right, actually, let me call it because otherwise you'll never... So you've got Hukou reform, you've got prefecture-level cities, you've got uh, spatial equilibrium versus dynamic modelling, and you've got remittances in environmental uh, improvements. Take your pick, four minutes. Yeah, so <laughs> let me just make a bunch of general comments, I guess. The, the, um, on the slide, in your question on the last part, the slide that I showed, uh, one of those, the picture of... This village in Dingxi County in 1984 in China was uh, an example of complete degradation. Mao had ordered, basically, well, plant rice everywhere, which meant denuding the countryside, the hillsides, and created enormous erosion. Uh, obviously, farming lands that are marginal is, is, it creates problems. And, um, and you know, I think there's some debate about this. The agricultural pop there's a surplus of labor in agriculture, unambiguously still today, but it's an aging population that to some degree will age out of, out of this. I think the worst problem is, the, is education in the rural sector. Yeah. You want modern, really productive farmers, you want them better educated. Um, on the Migration reforms in the hukou system. So this whole thing starts in 1982 with a plan that we're gonna, we want the smaller towns and the smaller cities to grow, so we're going to allow this localized within prefecture to some degree migration. For middle cities, we want to you know, allow them to have also a little bit of growth. For the biggest cities, we don't want to have any growth. That was the plan in the 1982 uh, you know, annual five-year plan that, that was an urban-based plan. And that plan has, in some sense, guided everything since. So when I hear of reforms that say, gee, we're going to allow localized migration, I mean, that's been there for 30 years. Um, and you know, we're going to try and constrain who goes to the bigger cities. That's also been there. So I... Um, uh, Reform is a, it is possible to build an expressway system as you've done in China in within, you know, 10 years, less than 10 years, and to blanket the countryside, the whole of the hinterland of China with an expressway system, a modern expressway system, a massive uh, achievement, um, and probably in the long run good for, for, for China. Uh, as, as most countries have done at some point as they got richer to, to blanket the countryside with, with infrastructure connecting the key points. Um, but, you know, you could carry out reforms. That could be very quick, but these reforms have all been, uh, all been slow. Uh, what else do we have? Spatial equilibrium. Um, Hugh, yeah, I mean, there's dynamics and there's, uh, you know, evolution and there's a short-run equilibria and so on. I think spatial equilibria in China is a very important concept in the sense that you're trying to move to a situation first in capital markets where returns are roughly equalized across space so that capital is equally productive in this location as it is in that. I think that's a useful concept. I think that allowing workers to move and not inhibiting them by not providing them with public services or not educating their kids is, um, 
I think that's a, you want to have more freedom in labor markets so people can move where they're more productive. It's, it's a gain. And yes, there's a, you know, you're, there is a, a gap that's a natural gap between the incomes in the urban sector and the rural sector as you start the urbanization process that induces people to move to cities. A three to one gap, you, you don't need for that to happen, right? Uh, it was good enough with two to one. Uh, this, is, this is something else. This is another order of magnitude. So I think it's very important to think in terms of those concepts. And yes, there is a dynamic process, and I've glossed that over, obviously. I'm not doing a course here, so, um, or trying not to. So, yeah. Prefecture-level cities, if you want to answer the cheeky second question. What was, that, what was, the, what was the question? Oh, well, may, let's not go there, then. She can come up and ask it to you privately afterwards. Uh, as we're at 8 o'clock and it was the second one. So, um, <laughs> let me impose some discipline. Let me uh, uh, ask you to thank Vernon for a fascinating talk.